Hi everyone, and welcome to the next page. I'm Natalie Alexander, and this is our podcast at the UN Geneva Library and Archives. This episode delves into the world of negotiation. As we mark 100 years of multilateralism in Geneva, and the UN turns 75 this year, what is the role of negotiation in the multilateral context? For this conversation, we're joined by Jérôme Bellion-Jourdain for an online recording. He's currently a senior fellow at the Global Governance Centre at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. And before that, he served as the lead EU negotiator on a range of thematic issues such as business and human rights, as well as country situations in the UN Human Rights Council for almost nine years. So in this episode, he shares insights into negotiating at the multilateral level, but also some opportunities he sees for change and evolution in the practice of negotiation to address global challenges, and also some reflections as we record this episode during COVID-19 from our respective homes. He's currently working to explore the potential for an initiative which would provide the space to experiment new formats of negotiations to make them more inclusive and to hopefully foster negotiations towards the greater good. He shares a lot more about this in the episode, as well as some tips on how we can all bring more inclusive conversations and negotiations into our own fields and daily lives. We do have in the podcast notes the resources that we mentioned in the discussion, so head over to the notes to be able to read and learn more. We hope you enjoy. Let's negotiate. Jérôme, thank you so much for joining us online for, for this conversation. Thank you, Nathalie. Pleased to be on the next page with you. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Jérôme, you're, you're now a senior fellow at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. But before that, you were the lead EU negotiator on, on a range of issues in the UN Human Rights Council for almost nine years. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you came to work in this field of international negotiation? Sure. My first experience in negotiation, in fact, is very local. I mean, it was when I was at high school, uh, there was a major strike as we have them in France. And I was speaking from a loudspeaker from the top floor of a building of my school building with uh, 2,000 students below me, pushing uh, me to call for a continuation of a strike. And I had behind me the school administration calling for me to try to stop the strike. That was the first experience of negotiation in sense of mediation, but that was very local and my exposure to uh, world politics and news was uh, very limited. And it's only later that I started to travel and uh, move to Cairo to learn Arabic, then move to different places for my PhD to Sudan, Pakistan, Bosnia, Zaguna. And it's only, you know, when I started to work with the Secretary of Amnesty International that I had a first hand of experience of negotiation to negotiate access for Amnesty International to Libya for, for the first time in 15 years, then with the International Committee of Red Cross, and then my postings with the European Union in Cairo and Jerusalem. But then my real experience of international negotiation started where when I landed in Geneva from Jerusalem to, uh, to Geneva in 2010, and I was suddenly immersed in the world of negotiations. When I left Jerusalem, I was told Geneva is a quiet place. You'll be by the Lake Léman. It's going to be uh, very quiet and uh, and you'll have a good time. What I experienced is intense multilateral negotiations. I was immediately given responsibility on uh, to lead negotiations on behalf of the European Union on sensitive fights and intense negotiations. And I was thrilled to, to be part of that 
but what an experience. Great. So what interests you about working in this field? You've dedicated a lot of your professional life to it and are still working on, on the idea of negotiation at the Graduate Institute. I think we live in a world of rising tensions. And often I've heard that, well, if the world is divided, it's impossible to find agreement at, at the UN level, at the multilateral level. And what I've seen in my nine years of negotiations for the EU is, you know, the power of negotiators from uh, all continents to go the extra mile, to stretch their instructions, to reach a common ground. And I really give credit to each negotiator I've been working with. I think it is this power of negotiators, the power of negotiation. And I think what, what I've decided to do since I left the European Union and joined the Graduate Institute, the Global Governance Centre, is really to invest in the potential for a new initiative that could be a platform, could be another format dedicated to negotiations and negotiators to experiment new ways of negotiating and approaching negotiations. I flagged this idea for the first time at the World Negotiation Day um, uh, last year, organized by UNITA and the Agence des uh, Negociateurs, and it's been currently explored uh, with a team of individuals from international organizations, business, civil society, media, and others. In my view, I mean, the current context is that we mark in Geneva a centenary of uh, multilateralism since uh, the establishment of the League of Nations. The UN is turning uh, 75 this year, and there are many reflections away on the future of multilateralism. But most importantly, I believe in the power of negotiations to get us through the acute global government crisis as we live it today. What sort of world are we living in? We, we have a world of challenges faced by humankind where we see that they are increasingly global and interconnected. COVID-19 is one of them, but we have climate change inequalities and many others. And we see in this situation that real or perceived differences in interest and worldviews are being exploited by political leaders and others uh, to fuel conflicts and tensions. We also see a paradox. I mean, there's, you know, this question, does the planet have enough to feed us all, is something that I hear very often. At the same time, we see a competition for the uh, accumulation of, of wealth, uh, which seems to fuel the gap between those you have and those you don't have and have not enough to survive. So this could turn into a battle for survival, where some uh, would be uh, bound to lose for, for others to win. And, and this global governance crisis, as we see it, uh, has many reasons, there are many reasons for that. But I think one question is whether it has to do with the fact that we live in a world which is still very much state-centric in terms of institutions, in terms of uh, multilateral negotiations, where we see states are negotiating on behalf of their people in the defense of a national interest. And I think much could be said about this notion of national interest. Uh, and in fact, it often comes to undermine multilateralism. So the proposal we're making is that maybe it's time to expand the global negotiation table for negotiations to be much more inclusive. It's also time maybe to say that, well, negotiations are not about a win-lose dynamic, but it's a win-win not only for the negotiating parties, but also making sure that we think of the planet, of the people, this third win, uh, which uh, William Urey in his book, Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy uh, Opponents, describes as a what is it that we can do to make sure that the whole, the people, the planet, get out of a negotiation uh, positively? So before we get into to looking at the current world of negotiation, I guess negotiation could mean different things depending on the context. But from your perspective, if you could explain the word negotiation and what it means to you in three words, what would they be and why? It's a challenge, but I'll, uh, I'll make it even more of a challenge. And instead <laughs> of uh, three words, uh, three different words, I'll take three words, but the same. Listening, listening, listening. 
the way I've seen it in so many negotiations is that listening is an essential skill in negotiation, but we don't necessarily uh, use it as we should. There is a tendency to come to a negotiation and we state a position instead of listening to uh, the others and where they come from and listening to what their interests might be, where they are in terms of their emotions. Listening is also important to uh, and essential to build trust and we need trust in negotiation. I've seen so many negotiations ending up in a deadlock because of a lack of trust. And finally, if we listen well, this is what allows us to look at the various options when we face a situation, a problem, to create value, to find this solution, which is not necessarily at the negotiation table as we start, but to find it because we listen to all those who are around the negotiation table. Something I think we could reflect on for, for most aspects of our lives, I think. Let's look then at the field of international negotiation in action. Could you share with us a little bit more about your journey in multilateral negotiations on behalf of the European Union? What was your role and what did it really look like in reality? My experience of working with the uh, European Union and being negotiator for the European Union has been in different settings. It's been primarily in the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva. I went through some 25 regular sessions of the Human Rights Council, special sessions, sessions of intergovernmental working groups uh, working on thematic issues. Uh, but also came in support of colleagues in other negotiations in the World Health Assembly and recently before I left the EU in the group of uh, governmental experts on the lethal autonomous weapons uh, systems in the field of uh, disarmament. And what I've seen is, you know, I've been working obviously on a range of issues and that's, uh, you know, the very nature of militarism and working on issues such as business and human rights, uh, regulation of private security companies, extreme poverty, the right to health, the right to food, the management of toxic and hazardous waste, impact of the arms transfers on human rights. The list is long. I mean, I could add, uh, you know, remotely piloted aircrafts and drones and, you know, the establishment of an expert on the protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. If you add to that, I mean, a number of negotiations on possible future legally binding instruments on the right to development, on business and rights, uh, complemented to uh, existing instruments such as the International Convention, on the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. My work has been to, to work at two levels. It's a two-level negotiation. In the, you, you work first with the, with the 28, and I had the privilege to work with the 28 member states of, of the European Union, now uh, 27. You can imagine them all being represented in a room at the Palais des Nations or at our delegation uh, around the table. And you need to find agreement among the 28 member states, among all the member states, that means also different line ministries in the various capitals. That means also making sure that, you know, all levels are involved and sometimes decisions are taken at a very high level, minister level, prime minister level. I had also to make sure that uh, I had the backing of my own institution, the uh, diplomatic service, the external action service of, uh, of the European Union uh, and coordinate with commission services in Brussels. So a very complex machinery of negotiation, in a sense, within the European Union to ensure that we have positions that are united, credible, and then that takes me to the other level, which is once we have these positions, we negotiate, we go to the Palais des Nations and negotiate with the rest of the UN membership. And there's a constant back and forth between the two levels, uh, between what we negotiate with the UN membership back to the EU, making sure that I keep uh, everybody informed of progress in a negotiation, get, get a mandate to continue the negotiation. And this can be a very free till the very end until, until a resolution is put to a vote. I mean, uh, are we going to have enough? 
yes on, on the screen at, in room 20 of, uh, of Palais de Nation. Sometimes until the last minute, you, you don't know. You have also uh, you know questions as to whether you will get the backing of all your constituency uh, to participate or not in a given uh, negotiation. And that can also be sometimes decided at the last minute. So these are some of the aspects of my work as a negotiator for the European Union and all this in very time-bound negotiations. We're talking when we talk about regular sessions of the Human Rights Council, you know, negotiations have uh, to be uh, concluded within three, four weeks. In an intergovernmental working group, it's often one week, maximum two weeks. In the, as I've experienced in the course of the years as a, as a negotiator, the, how technologies have also uh, impacted on the way we, we work. Increasingly, as a negotiator, I've started to use WhatsApp to communicate with my group, with the member states of the European Union, but also to communicate with other negotiators in the room in a live negotiation. We also see how technology has impacted the, on the scrutiny of negotiations. I mean, you have negotiations now that are live on UN TV, where the world can watch what is being done and said. Twitter and other social media are being used, and I've seen, you know, how everything I would say or do, my body language, the fact that at some point I would leave the room, uh, maybe, you know, just because I go to the restroom, but it could be interpreted and it has been interpreted as uh, uh, the EU leaving the room. And so that's the power of the new technologies. And I think we have many questions uh, to come with tomorrow, the use of uh, artificial intelligence and other technologies that will definitely impact on the way we, uh, we negotiate and the way we will negotiate tomorrow will be definitely different from the way I've been negotiating over the past years. We will definitely look a little bit more into technology and, and the future of negotiation later in the conversation. But before we get there, knowing that you've been working in this field for, for the past nine years for the EU, is there a memorable negotiation that, that you'd like to share with us and, and why was it important to you? Well, I mean, the memories of my negotiations are, there are quite a few and as difficult to, uh, to, to, to pick one, but a few deadlocks which we had to overcome and to turn the... Uh, impossible to the possible but I, I'll mention maybe one specific example and there was a negotiation in, in 2017 on uh, on the situation of human rights in Myanmar what was at stake at the time this is a resolution presented usually by the European Union and Human Rights Council but we were in a new context we had a situation where Aung San Suu Kyi in Myanmar had come to power uh, but increasingly we also saw uh, you know allegations of violations by military and security forces this resolution of the European Union was meant to renew the mandate of the special reporters to monitor, to uh, report on the situation in a given country. But given the situation on the ground, there was so much pressure uh, reported by the uh, Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights that just come out before allegations of possible crimes against humanity, pressure by the civil society and others to to go beyond the special reporter mandate and to establish what we call a commission of inquiry, which is a, an international investigation mechanism. So this was supported by some, but there was a pushback by others. So what do we do? We have also you know, major players, the US, China, Japan, groups such as ASEAN and the uh, Organization of the Islamic Cooperation. The clock is ticking. The session has started, you know that you've got four weeks to go, you, you need to get started with the negotiation. You start with a zero draft, uh, you test it uh, within the European Union, you test it with those who are likely to support it, you move to the UN membership, but after a couple of rounds of negotiation, we end up in a deadlock. And we see a situation where some would like to stick to what we have, others continue to push for a commission of inquiry, red lines on, uh, on all sides, and there's no way to go. As a negotiator at this point of time, I had that call to make. I could have said, well, that's the end of the negotiation. There's nowhere to go and there's you know, very little room for, for, for progress. 
But then, you know, I think the the role of negotiator in a situation like that is precisely to try to come up with a, with an option which potentially can get us out of, of this deadlock. And that's what I've done and thought that maybe the way to go is instead of having a special reporter or a commission of inquiry, you could try, we could try maybe to, uh, to test the, the proposal of a fact-finding mission. Test the idea within the EU, test it around also informally with, with, with states and see whether it tries. And finally, we make it a formal proposal. I find myself chairing a meeting at the UN with all uh, members of the United Nations in the room, a civil society. The room is packed because there's much attention. And I try to present this proposal of a fact-finding mission as a midway, in a sense, between the two other options. I'm drilled with questions. The, the session of negotiation is extremely difficult. But then finally, I feel that maybe there's potential for, for traction and it will, it will pass. So we continue to work, obviously, a lot of work behind the scene. Within a week, we end up in a situation where this is the resolution presented formally for adoption to the Human Rights Council. Until the last minute, there's uncertainty. One state you know, leaves it open maybe to call a vote on this resolution. But ultimately, the resolution is adopted without a vote. And it is a kind of a landing zone where... Obviously, not all parties are fully satisfied with the outcome, and that's often the case in a negotiation, but all find an interest in letting it pass with more or less support. The fact-finding mission is established. We have then great members appointed on this fact-finding mission, and they start their work. They report to the Human Rights Council. They report to the General Assembly, to the UN Security Council. We have a significant mechanism being put in place, and the last report was presented last September in 2019. This is an example you know, of, a, of a negotiation where I could have said, well, it's impossible to get through. And my take is that nothing is impossible in the negotiation. You can really work. It's a collective effort with uh, all negotiators. It also involves, obviously, a collaboration. And I you know, give credit to all those who work in support of negotiations, the secretary at the conferences, the services, the editors, and the many others who come in support of negotiations. So a really collective effort. And I think at the end of a negotiation, it's also important to show appreciation for all those who have been involved in the negotiation. It is a collective effort and a collective outcome. It must be it must be really interesting to work in this area where there's a time bound, I guess, deadline, but a very intricate process and, and it requires a lot of a lot of teamwork and a lot of collaboration. Now that we've heard a bit about your experiences, I'm interested to know about the future of negotiation from, from your viewpoint. What do you think are the strengths right now of negotiation in, in the multilateral process, but also what could be improved or changed to, to develop and evolve the process of negotiation? Multilateralism, as we as we live it today, obviously is the result of a of a history, and we have today this system which is quite well oiled in the UN with multilateral negotiations and rules of procedures and established practice. So, if we look at the strength, I think this is well in place, and if you look on on the paper, at least it works very well. It is a system which is also very much tailored for negotiations driven by by states by governments. What I would see in terms of need to, to improve maybe the way we negotiate at the global level, is that's exactly what uh, this new initiative, this platform, what we are trying to establish now, we're trying to address. I mean, I see three main areas where we could see improvement. And, and I leave them with the listeners to this podcast, maybe uh, to, to come back to me and say, well, hold on, I mean, I, I disagree, or uh, there might be more, but I think uh, there are uh, three uh, entry points. One is the need to rethink the format of international negotiations. 
I think we need to go beyond the, the current uh, kind of a state-centric multilateralism. We are in a world where states uh, drive the negotiations. Maybe there's one or a few examples of uh, exceptions, such as the International Labour Organization, where you have a tripartite system with governments, uh, employers and workers being at the negotiation table. But broadly speaking, there is this need that you have a much more inclusive multilateralism. And interestingly enough, I mean, it's something that we hear now from the, from the top level in the UN. I mean, the UN Secretary General Guterres on uh, the occasion of the International Day of Multilateralism mentioned the need for inclusive multilateralism based on a deep interaction, and I quote him, with civil society, businesses, local and regional authorities and other stakeholders. The question is whether we, we leave it to interaction with or whether we go a step further and, and see whether we can experiment really to bring the various parties to the negotiation table. And in a sense, what we could do is to try to turn what we have in the UN Charter, the we, the peoples, which is at the start of the Charter, and then it's all left for governments to, to do the rest, to turn the we, the peoples into a, a reality. So rethinking the format of negotiation, but also looking at the world negotiation scene as a, in the way it is a, extremely fragmented today. And I think there's a need to build bridges between different worlds of negotiations. If we take Geneva as an example, we have, you know, Geneva is a world center of so many uh, negotiations, but you have negotiations in parallel in the Human Rights Council, in the International Labour Organization, in the World Health Assembly, the International Telecommunication Union, the UN Conference on Trade and Development, the WIPO, the World Trade Organization. All this is in parallel, and I think we need to uh, build bridges between these different worlds of negotiations, uh, find synergies in Geneva, but also beyond, uh, between, between Geneva and New York and other centers of negotiation. I was uh, privileged enough to, to be hired by UNITA to facilitate, et, et je vais parler en français quelques mots simplement parce qu'on est aussi dans un contexte où il faut utiliser les différentes langues. On m'a demandé de participer à un atelier organisé par l'Organisation internationale de la francophonie où on avait euh, autour de la table des négociateurs de sept pays africains euh, venant euh, avec des, des horizons très différents, des négociateurs dans le domaine du commerce, du, euh, du numérique, du, du changement climatique, et c'est cela dont on a besoin, de bâtir des passerelles, de bâtir des passerelles entre différents négociateurs, différents mondes de négociation. You know, just uh, in English, because I, not everybody maybe uh, will, will get it, but we had this wonderful experience of a, of a workshop where I was asked to come and, uh, and organize a negotiation simulation with negotiators from seven African countries, negotiators in the field of, uh, of trade, digital and climate change. And that's what we need to bring together the different different worlds of negotiations. The second, so rethinking the format of negotiation is extremely important. But the second one where I see we, we, we need to do much more is to enhance the capabilities of uh, our negotiators. Often negotiators end up and being embarked in uh, complex negotiations. And, and I think, you know, I would have liked, for instance, to have a safe space where negotiators in a case of deadlock uh, on a difficult negotiations, and there are quite a few negotiations in Geneva and elsewhere that have been dragging on for years, could have a safe space where they can reflect on their experience and try to find ways to unlock the, the dynamic purely from their experience of negotiation, not to discuss substance, but really from the negotiation point of view. A safe space where we could also discuss very difficult uh, issues in negotiations, such as the asymmetry of power, uh, as we see it in, uh, in many negotiations. And the third area where I see a need to, to do some more work in the field of negotiation is maybe to encourage uh, negotiations for, uh, for the greater good. 
negotiations are still very much perceived kind of a win-lose mindset or one going to pursue my interest at the expense of others. And, and in the best case scenario, you, you're in a mindset where you try to find agreement among the negotiating parties. But what we miss is really this thinking that we can and we should, in a sense, all have negotiations contributing to the common good, the greater good. I don't want to go back to uh, philosophy with Aristotle. Or, um, I reread uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. I mean, I've got a, a shared garden with asylum seekers and uh, and that's next to a street called uh, Contrat Social. So I reread the Contrat Social. And I think that's where we need to uh, think in terms of a global social contract. So what we could do is really to, to look into ways to, to make sure that all negotiations of tomorrow are geared towards global cooperation, have a positive impact for, for the greater good. Look, looking at these ideas that you have, and especially, I think, for the greater good, but also rethinking the format of negotiations, do you have any ideas there in how this could support more diversity, support more representation and inclusion for different groups? I mean, from, from the public, from society, young people, how, how would they be a part of these new formats of negotiations? I think that's exactly the, the type of issues that we're trying to, uh, to address now as we've started to work on this experiment of trying to launch a virtual and inclusive negotiation, which we call for the world after COVID, uh, COVID-19. I think if we, if we look at the situation as it is now, we have this uh, global health crisis, which has uh, become an economic crisis. And the idea is, you know, can we bring everybody to the table to, to address this and to turn this crisis into kind of a wake-up call to address uh, other emergencies? give an opportunity to define the world we want for us and for the next generations. An often heard expression over the past few weeks since uh, the COVID-19 outbreak is we're all on the same boat. I've heard that so many times from leaders and others. But it seems that the boat is sinking and, and we see still the temptation to fuel conflicts and divisions. So I think the technology uh, provides opportunities to, to change the equation, but it's not enough. Going digital is not, is not enough. If we don't change the format of negotiation, it's not going to necessarily uh, change the outcomes and the dynamics. And that's where we have decided to embark on this process to see whether we can launch a negotiation where anybody, in a sense, could uh, join this virtual uh, negotiation table. It is an idea that we first flagged in a, in a blog with a title which was maybe can be seen as provocative by some, uh, this idea of uh, democratizing international negotiations. And, and the idea is really to, to look into the possibility of bringing people from all walks of life and, uh, and all continents to join a global virtual negotiation. We have gone through a situation where Many of us were on balconies or in the streets to, uh, to applause health workers across continents. Why is it that we cannot bring health workers from all continents to a negotiation table? Uh, that we bring the elderly who have been particularly exposed to COVID-19 to the negotiation table. That we bring the young generation as a need to have a say on what kind of world we want for, uh, for, for tomorrow. Could be that my eight-year-old daughter and uh, other children can also join in this uh, negotiation. And the idea is really to have a, a space of negotiations to to use the, the language used in the 2030 agenda, leaving no one behind. I mean, there is a possibility to leave no one behind and make sure that everybody is at the negotiation table. It would allow to bring all views. By definition, the negotiation table would be, uh, you know, there would be people who believe that we can continue in the same way we've done uh, business in the past and uh, others who uh, think that we need to go for a reset. 
So the first, what we would like to see as, as a first outcome of uh, this negotiation is maybe to try to elaborate guiding principles for, for negotiators. Now, to go back to your question, inclusivity. The technology allows us, obviously, uh, to do much progress, but there are still unresolved questions. How to be truly inclusive? We have uh, limitations, for instance, access to internet and technology is not necessarily open to all. We have issues of how to negotiate in multiple languages and how to make sure that anyone can come in in his or her own language and negotiate at this virtual negotiation table. We have also, you know, what we would like to do is instead of coming with a draft and asking people to react is also, can we crowdsource the initial contributions for a draft, a zero draft, but then that requires obviously powerful tools of artificial intelligence and are we there, is it reliable? So these are among the many questions that we're trying to address to get started with this virtual and inclusive negotiation. I'm working currently with a team of uh, almost uh, 40 individuals uh, from international organizations, governments, business, uh, academia, civil society, and, uh, and many others, and just individuals who have come to, to join this project from China to uh, the US and, and some are based in the Maldives and elsewhere. And I think we will need partners and support, but that's uh, the horizon trying to create that virtual space of a negotiation where you and I and uh, anybody on earth could uh, plug in and have his or her voice heard. Great. So if there are any interested listeners who are who are wanting to share ideas with you, can, can they find out more about this project or, or contact you somehow? We could leave it in the show notes. Obviously, I mean, this project is open to, to all and it's a, it's a co-creation. So uh, all views and contributions are much welcome. And, and the best ways we will leave, obviously, my, my contact details, uh, the blog on uh, this question on democratizing uh, international negotiations is something that is also available and, uh, and gives some more insight as to what is in the making. Thanks, Jérôme. So from what we've learned in this conversation so far, there's a lot that's happening, but there's also a lot to think about for the future. But now I'm interested to know from, from you what we can all learn from, from negotiation. Do you have any tips for us as listeners? How can we be more inclusive, think differently um, as we work in our own daily jobs and collaborate in, in our daily lives? Well, I think that I have in my professional experience of negotiation, I mean, I learned a lot myself about my negotiation skills or maybe what I need to improve in my daily life. And, and I would take maybe two points going back to the importance of, uh, of listening. Um, the first one is really listening to, uh, to others, uh, to put, I need to put myself in the shoes of others, really to understand where they come from, their interest and create value. There's this famous example in uh, which I give in uh, when I train uh, negotiations of, of an orange and two people fighting over an orange. It's a rare commodity. What do you do? Uh, you know, one can run away and uh, the other's left with nothing. It's kind of a win-lose or you uh, share it and it's half-half, but then you're not fully satisfied. And, and in fact, I mean, often what we do is we fail to ask the question, why do you need the orange? And then you find out that one would need the orange to, to make an orange juice and the other one would need the, the skin of the orange to, to, to make a cake. And then we are, you know, the two parties in this negotiation are fully satisfied. So listening to the others and understanding what is in the, their interest in a specific situation is extremely important. The, the second aspect is really to listen to yourself. I mean, I was inspired by William Urie and his book, Getting to Yes with Yourself. We have this tendency to blame others and, and in a sense, we fail to recognize that often the problem is with ourselves. We have a tendency to react in a sense in ways that are not in our interest. 
And William Uriam has developed a methodology, you know, for instance, to go on the balcony when you're in a very tense situation of negotiation, and that can be uh, at home as well as in a professional experience of a negotiation. You take a pause, you go to the balcony and you, you breathe and you take that uh, perspective and the self-control which will help you to go back uh, to the negotiation in a calmer way and maybe better see your interests and the interests of others. And I think we have this, what we live uh, now is maybe also a situation where uh, globally we have this tendency to blame political leaders and that's part of this kind of a blaming culture. And there are good reasons for that. I mean, you know, if we look at the world leaders today, I mean, we don't, we could say that many are not leading by example, and they are, you know, they are excellent and visionary leaders, and, and some world leaders should be praised for that. But that seems to be this expectation that we uh, expect everything from the political leaders. And maybe this is what has to change. Our experiment, for instance, of bringing individuals to the negotiation table would allow people who today maybe feel powerless to uh, allow them to use the power of negotiation and engage uh, with maybe parties that are much more powerful at the global negotiation table. So that's something where we can empower people to get uh, their voice uh, heard in a global negotiation. But that will also necessarily that we, we need to see as to what is it that we can do to negotiate with ourselves. I mean, all the changes that we've covered in this podcast that are needed, uh, if we want really to address uh, seriously climate change, the preservation of the environment, biodiversity, those are issues of inequalities. And then the question that we need to ask ourselves, and it's a negotiation with ourselves, is this, uh, what is it that I can change in my daily life? so that we really uh, contribute to work for the greater good, uh, for this kind of a win-win-win for uh, for the people and, and the planet. So I'd like really to end with, with that thought that we need to, to work, obviously, at the global level, uh, but at all levels as well on, uh, on negotiation. And, you know, I was inspired by this, what Nelson Mandela left us as a legacy. Uh, you know, one quote from Nelson Mandela is as follows. One of the things I learned when I was negotiating was that until I changed myself, I could not change others. I think that's definitely something that applies at all levels of negotiations, from the local to the global. A powerful thought to end with. Merci beaucoup, Jérôme. Thank you so much for joining us on the next page. We'll make sure to include the resources that you mentioned in the podcast notes. I wish you all the best with your, your project. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, uh, Nathalie, and thank you to the next page for uh, working together on maybe turning a new page of, of negotiation for the world of, uh, of tomorrow. <laughs>